Hello and welcome to the Harry Man Show, episode 76. Today we have in studio Keith Henney with his new project, Demi Aura. Keith is a great drummer and you really need to check out his demo with his band. It's really busy, technical stuff. How you doing, Keith? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for tracking down here. And uh, I know we've been kind of like, you know, in and out, like networking in the same music scene, but it's finally nice to meet you one-on-one here. Yeah, likewise. Yeah. Thanks for having me and great to meet you. So uh, let's kind of go to the beginning. How long have you kind of been in the Phoenix scene here? Um, I've been in the Phoenix scene since 1994. Um, I moved out from Ohio with a musician friend I'd been playing with since uh, I was about 14, and we kind of moved out, moved out west. We didn't want to go to California. We decided to hit Phoenix instead because mm-hmm. we figured it was a little cheaper to live out here, and uh, <laughs> we heard it was a pretty good metal scene and a pretty good scene back then. Yeah. So what was going on in Ohio? Uh, I was born and raised in uh, Maumee, Ohio. Uh, it's a suburb of Toledo, Ohio, and uh, wasn't a big scene back there. Yeah, I can uh, imagine, yeah. Um, so we were playing a lot of you know music pretty young and um, just uh, wanted to uh, get, out, got to get out west and see if we could uh, you know, follow our dream. Yeah, first of all, there was a lot of people, but I knew there was a lot of a lot of music going on, so it was really exciting. So, what were you, what as you were in that private music scene? What 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 were you, what kind of bands were you in? Like, um, I've always stuck to more of the hard rock, metal, progressive metal type stuff. And at that time, it wasn't really big for for progressive metal or metal. It was kind of more of the grunge oh really you know more grunge and of course you had metallica and pantera the big ones but like metal wasn't really kind of on the downswing because you had hip-hop and you had the new metal coming in and you know all mtv was kind of swinging more towards some different stuff so it was kind of a weird time but uh strangely enough we had a like a six seven song demo on that we put together with a four-piece band it was called helical scan and uh, we had some label interest with Metal Blade um, at the time, and it it never panned out. But it was like it was kind of cool that, that we were getting some interest, and uh, to us it was like this brave new world. We were really like just happy to be getting some stuff out into the world, and you know for some people to actually be responding to it. So it was an interesting time for sure. And what was the name of this group? It was called Helical Scan. That's cool. And we're progressive metal. Um, you know, that's kind of that was a big focus of for me once it got towards the late eighties and, and, and the nineties I really started getting into the more advanced type stuff, just listening to it and trying to throw some of that in there whenever you can, but still make it interesting, but try to write stuff that had a some you know, some catchy parts too for the you know, verses and choruses, but try to have some interludes that were a little bit busier. Well you know, I hear a lot of you on your plane and I mean that in a, in a compliment, you know. Oh from what I heard so far. So was that a big thing for you coming up as well? As far as Neil? Yeah. Oh, yeah, he's probably one of the main reasons I play play the drums. Him and Nico McBrain. From but, the, from I mean, like, I can listen to a drummer and know if they went to a Neil for a face. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, my, my parents were really cool because they listened to a lot of really cool music in the 70s, and I remember that really vividly. Like, mm. you know, talking Zeppelin, Sabbath. Know, Pink Floyd, you know, and then Journey, all the classic stuff. Mm-hmm. But I also had an older brother that was into like Deep Purple, Priest, uh, Sabbath. But he w- he was into some really ec- eclectic stuff like Frank Zappa. Oh yeah. And Mahavishnu Orchestra and King Crimson like, with these really crazy 
grain of you know just the drummers and the musicianship was just outlandish and as a kid you're just like i don't even know what's going on i didn't get into i didn't find that zap until my late teens so i was kind of late to that boat but since we're talking about your origins let's kind of go back to your ohio yeah was was drums the first instrument um yeah it was the first instrument i actually was kind of singing and doing choir and writing lyrics and stuff at a pretty young age like maybe eight or nine and then um I, I told my mom I wanted to play drums, and a lot of it was probably because my older brother was playing Rush and all this crazy stuff with these great drums. He was a musician as well. He was a guitar player, and he and he's the one I, I remember hearing all that stuff, and I just really wanted to play the drums. And I told my mom I, I wanted to play drums, and one day she came home with this big suitcase-looking thing. It looked like it was like a hard shell case, and it looked like a suitcase, and it was a snare drum. It was a premier snare in this big case. And uh, I started... Um, that's a cool mom. Yeah, I, God bless her, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, and it had one of those little rubber si- silencers on it, yeah. like yeah. you know. And um, then I started in the fifth grade, I think, and kind of the preliminary, rudimentary stuff uh-huh. uh, before you go into the marching band. Yeah. So that's that's kind of where I started. But uh, strangely enough, I was playing xylophone and like timpani. That's good. Before the snare, before I came first chair, I was playing some of the other instruments, which was pretty cool too. Yeah, I think I, I think a lot more people need to dive into that these days, because I you know I grew I went to school playing Tiffany, and I think that really did develop like a a bass to kind of rhythm, yeah, you know, skill set a little, a little bit. Yeah, you know? it's a little <laughs> different. I mean, it's you have to approach it differently. But the xylophone was really cool too. Yeah, because you know I I'm not, you know, when it comes to melody, that was really cool to be able to hear those different tones and stuff. So, yeah, snare, and that was kind of how I started, just playing a snare drum. In the marching band. And then you just started piecing the kit together from there. Yeah, um, I was playing uh, in the marching band for, I think, from fifth to eighth grade. And then I, I my brothers had a band, and his, his drummer had a four-piece uh, Sparkle Ludwig kit. Uh, so I would always toy around on that in the garage. And yeah. that's kind of when I first started playing a kit, and I didn't know what I was doing. And I didn't have any formal drum set training until many, many years later. I, I learned a lot in the, in the marching band, mm-hmm. um, but I didn't have any formal training on the drum set. It was more just rudiments and the normal stuff you do in marching band. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the start of it. So were you just kind of like playing with your stereo with Rush songs and how did they just be yeah. with Black Sabbath albums? And all yeah. That? Uh, once I finally got this really, it was a really bad drum. I don't even, it didn't even have badges on it. It was like a five-piece blue kit. I probably overpaid yeah. for it, but I just bought it. I was so stoked to have a kit. Yeah, right? yeah. It was just a five-piece kit, really crappy camber symbols. They don't even make them anymore. Oh, I know those. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I seriously I think I actually have one over there somewhere just for relic purposes. But I didn't, but I didn't care. Um, yeah. And basically trying to learn Maiden, Metallica, Ozzy, and just I got pretty good at just figuring it out, but I, I could never get my left foot going where I could keep the time. Mm-hmm. But I could do like three limbs pretty good. Mm-hmm. But I was just learning songs, and that's kind of how I learned the kit, um, self-taught at that point. Uh, and it, it was great because I, I was around a bunch of young guys that were wanted to be rock stars or whatever yeah. or just have fun, and they wanted to learn the same stuff. So it was really, really fun, man. So that's that's kind of how I got into the kit. So that would have been probably sixth, seventh grade. So uh, did you get any formal lessons uh, kit-wise any, at any time? Yeah, I did later, but I was around 18. Um, uh, who did you study under? Uh, his name was Paul Neef Jr. He was from Toledo. He was uh, from a... Music store called Durdells. Uh, he was kind of a jazz fusion guy, but he he, he could play anything, you know, Latin rock, and uh, it changed the way I even just 
viewed what was possible on the drum. Was he pushing traditional grip on you? No. No? No. But he, I, I already knew the rudiments, but he, when he, when I took lesson from him within the first couple lessons, when he showed me how you could take a paradiddle and turn that into a beat, it yeah. blew my mind. Because yeah. <laughs> that was that linear thing. A lot of people do it now, but back then, I didn't know what was going on. Yeah, it's foreign. And then you got, you know, like, Neil, he did a lot of stuff that had the rudimental, on where you could belt. tell, yeah, with the ride and all that. And uh, that was always really cool. Yeah. And it, but it still had a cool, solid beat. Yeah. Uh, but when he showed me how to do a paradiddle and turn that into a 4-4 yeah. a four, four beat, I was like, wow. Like, yeah, then you're doing... Realized there was a lot, lot of, lot more to it than I realized. Yeah. yeah. And then, what age were you when you, you and your friend came to Phoenix? I would have been twenty-one. Okay, so right about that age, you were kind of developing your. Yeah, I'd had. Yeah, I'd been taking lessons for two or three years, and but you know, obviously up until then, I'd been playing in a lot of different bands and really trying to push the the limits of what I thought I could do, and a lot of double bass, but not just basic metal. I was always trying to. And throw a little syncopated stuff. And yeah, syncopation. Yeah. Mo more syncopation than odd signature. That didn't come until later because I didn't even know how to do that yeah. at that point. But I, I knew if they were in 4-4 four, four a lot of times. But if you're just trying to mimic that stuff you hear. Do you feel like too many kids got focused on speed and kind of directness? Because I know when I was growing up, like, I, I love Joey Orson. He's a big influence on me. But I remember yeah. there was a phase where all I cared about was, like, Running to the moon. Yeah, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not a I'm not a super fast drummer. In all honesty, um, uh. Uh, I really respect people that can go fast and blast and all that. But it's it's never been my forte. Yeah. Um, I really think there's a lot to it. Like it's technique, and I totally respect it. And it's I love to see that stuff because I'm not that great at it. Uh -huh. Um, but I I've never that hasn't really been my main goal. It's been I've always just trying to be. I want to be creative and hopefully come up with my own sound yeah. more than anything. And uh, if I can go fast in the process, that's cool, but it's, it hasn't been my main goal. Yeah, I think as I get older, I kind of veer away from the speed and the, you know, I'm more concerned about, you know, linear perfection. You know? Yeah, <laughs> and, and like I said, I mean, no, it's it's really cool and it's I, I love it to death. I love heavy music. I love fast music. But for me, it's like, um, I think... Uh, I'm at the age where, it's like, to me, it's almost like it, it'd be better for just almost like calisthenics, right? Like yeah. to stay in shape and like push yourself. But I don't necessarily know if I would go be in a black metal band, yeah, or, yeah. you know. But if I got an offer and I could pull it off, yeah. But um, it's not not my main focus. I, I really just try to really focus on just trying to keep my chops up, I guess, is the best way to put it. Yeah. You know? So, kind of jumping back into, like, the Phoenix, uh, what were the main venues at the time? I know Mason Jar was a big... Mason Jar, I saw many shows there, many shows, um, but also there were Back on Ash, uh, oh, Club I, I, Rio. I remember back, when I first moved here, that was still operating. Club Club Rio was right there on Scottsdale. It was a massive venue. It huh. was mainly a nightclub, but they had a lot of shows there, huh. and um, they tore it down ever since, but it, there was, like, a U-Haul place right there, but saw a lot of shows there. Um... So, yeah, I also used to go down to Tucson a lot for, like, The Rock. That was a cool venue. Um, yeah, but the Mason Jar was the main one. There weren't any venues in North Phoenix, really, uh -huh. until Joe's Grotto, and that was late 90s. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of what else. Um, oh, Boston's was really big. Uh-huh. Uh, Boston's was a really big venue. Um, a lot of them were out in Tempe, and yeah. those, like, Minder Binders. Uh-huh. There was a lot of I moved here in, like, there. 2005, so I can't think it was, like, right where those places were kind of disappearing. Yeah, yeah. some of them were probably even already closed. Um, but Boston's was really big back then. Uh, so, yeah, but I would, if I had to pick one, it would be 
a mason jar. Even how small it is, it saw a lot of any a lot of shows there. Played a lot of shows. Who did you see? It was memorable. Um, death. Really? With Gene Hogan. Oh man, that must. It was, it was on the. Um, and the guitar player was still alive at the time. Symbolic. Right? Yeah. Yeah. On the symbolic tour, so it would have been the second to last album they did, and. Gene Hoagland, I don't know if you've seen him. He's a pretty big dude. Yeah, he was. He's a little slimmer now these days. But he, I'm talking tall. He's yeah, like yeah. Six three. Yeah. And I remember him walking towards me, and he had a cane. He wears the big boots. He had a cane, and he he might have hurt himself or something. But he was walking at me, and he had sunglasses on, and I was trying to get his attention, and he, I don't know if he could see me, and I just <laughs> had to get out of his way. But I'll never forget it because he had a he had a artillery shell on the front of his kit, like a symbol, uh-huh. mounted sideways, like a spent shell, uh-huh. and like a a boat propeller, and he would play them like cymbals, and then they had these rafters, and he was literally playing fills in between the fills on the rafters. What? It was the strangest thing, but it's it's Gene Hoagland. Yeah. And he's just the monster on the kit. You so want to talk about Chops? That guy is, as far as heavy drummers, uh-huh. I mean, I love, because he's, he's tasteful, yeah. and it's he's also got the speed, but uh, that was one of the more memorable ones, but Cynic. Oh, okay. On the Focus Tour, we actually videotaped the entire set, which I have that. He recently passed away a couple of years Sean ago. Sean Reiner, yeah. yeah. Um, that was probably my top show of all time because we were literally like, they were right there, you know. Sean Malone and Paul Mosquito were right there. Yeah. And Sean Reiner, it's just over to the right, and he, he turned his kit so you could see him from the side. Yeah. And he played the MIDI cat. Uh. And they actually had a female vocalist doing the um, growl vocals. Really? But she didn't know on the album because uh, – think they made it they gave her credit i forget her name but she was in another big death metal band but it was cool because she was playing keys and uh just gro- doing all the growl vocals and they you know yeah it was really cool so cynic and death were probably the two most memorable shows that i remember from the the jar so yeah and then um yeah i know tool was in and out of there too that's kind of what i wish i would have saw yeah i never got to see him there because you always hear about these bands before they made it they came through there even nirvana i think jesus um but tool yeah they used to come through a lot i never got to see them though so yeah at kind least of the at the jar backstory the first time i seen you play was actually at joe's grotto with the band called vex oh you saw it yeah that's where i first seen you play oh okay because i used to play joe's grotto yeah here and there with different bands so i think i don't know if i was playing with you that night or i was just there okay i remember thinking like man that guy's good and you're incorporating like electronics in your setup and stuff like that yeah so how did vex come how what year did vex start for you um well those guys had already been going for five, well, probably at least five years before i met them but uh, it was kind of interesting because i was i was talking to you earlier about that clinic at the guitar center i was uh teaching for amy k music at the time and she had a i don't know if it's still there but it's right over there by the metro center mm-hmm. so she talked to a lot of the guys at guitar center and she wanted to get, try to drum up some more students uh-huh. so i did a drum clinic and um Joe Daya and DL, which is the, who's the singer, they thought there was a vocal clinic or something there that night, and they <laughs> went in there thinking there was this, it was either a guitar or a vocal clinic, and it wasn't what they thought it was. Yeah. So they pop in there, and turns out they're looking for a drummer, and uh, they sat through the whole thing, and I did this clinic, and you know everybody's just being real quiet, and I'm, any questions, <laughs> you know, and it's like it was kind of one of those things where it's like there wasn't a lot of commentary. Yeah. You know, everybody was just kind of watching, yeah. and. Uh, Finally, at the very end, uh, any you know, any last questions, anything you guys want to know, or you know, uh-huh. you know, anything, and uh, the singer goes, uh, DL, he says, uh, y- you want to join our band? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know, <laughs> you know, and I didn't know who they were at the time. I hadn't yeah. met them before, and it was pretty cool. And they came up and they gave me their number, and 
it took a couple years though because I had some other stuff going on and um he kind of he was pretty persistent yeah so and they were super cool guys uh and uh finally uh, it was about two years later you know I finally ended up saying yes but I, I had like two or three other things going on at the time and I was like not really that I don't want to do it but I it was just getting spread too thin yeah you know yeah breaking down drum sets saying up takes a lot <laughs> yeah and I, you know I was in um uh band that I had been doing since the 90s in different versions called Organism and it was um, probably some of the most technical stuff I ever did it was basically fusion but with a metal tinge to it but almost uh, the first album we were working on was kind of a clean like almost fusion type thing where there wasn't a lot of heaviness to it but a lot of odd signatures and all instrumental and um, it was really fun. It was just, I knew there wasn't a big market for it. Mm-hmm. But we actually played a lot of shows, and we actually were pretty well re- received around town, surprisingly, because that's not easy to do when you're instrumental. But uh, So I was doing that pretty heavily, and I was in another band with a, with a guy called Slate that was kind of progressive metal. And uh, so, but at some point, you know, the stuff either fills out or you get more time. And I really enjoyed doing it. You know, we did a lot of cool gigs, and um, it was really enjoyable. We played a lot of really cool uh venues and uh, all sorts of stuff so yeah those those guys are great so you were with them for how many years i was back there for about 10 years jesus yeah it was good it was a good decade and um right around 2019 before everything kind of went crazy um the uh the singer was he wanted to either take a hiatus or he wasn't sure if he wanted to you know be in the music industry just because of you know whatever for whatever Mm -hmm. reason and so it wasn't like you know, it wasn't like the end or anything. I don't think there could be a chance that there could always be something else happening with that. I just, I don't know what the status is. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, you know, it was a good run and uh, we played a lot of really cool stuff. And I was hoping to get a second album out with them, but uh, I don't know what the status is on that, if that will happen or not. But uh, yeah. yeah, it was a, it was a good time. We had a lot of fun. Now, I kind of want to talk about the project that you're in now. And I think you've been with them for two or three years, uh, Demi Aura, and they're awesome. This is the band I've been checking on the last couple of days. I really been enjoying that. So, can you kind of describe? I mean, this is like a really melodic, busy. I really like it. It feels very mechanic, and I like the vocals on it. But how did this project come about for you? Well, that has been it's been around a lot longer, but more of an instrumental band. Mm-hmm. It, organism. I started realizing there's a lot of bands called Organism, mm-hmm. and I was like, I want to change the name. Yeah. So we kind of shifted to Demiora. We had already had like a albums worth of material and we were a four-piece uh, instrumental at the time but we wanted vocals we just weren't able to find vocalist yeah so we wanted to streamline the sound and make it more friendly to a vocalist because yeah. the other stuff was just so crazy <laughs> it would have been really hard to put vocals over um, yeah. a lot of time signature changes so we wanted to kind of find a happy medium and uh, I decided oh, let's change the name and we had a song called blind to your aura in organism and then I was like we kept throwing around new names like Demi just all different variations and we're trying to find something cool that didn't sound pretentious mm-hmm. and I was like I'm just gonna make a word up and I, was, <laughs> I took Demi and one of the song titles and just Demi Aura and nobody had that name and I was like it sounds kind of cool and yeah it's pretty unique so you know it is what it is but I, I knew it hadn't been used so that was a big deal for me yeah um, and that's how that came about and then um, uh, we had some lineup changes and then we went to a three-piece uh, you know, and we started playing a lot of shows instrumentally, just a three-piece, and we were playing just some bass tracks because we, we couldn't find a bass player either mm-hmm. or a second guitarist, so we're playing the sequencers. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, finally we found our vocalist, Chelsea Rapchild. So that was about four or five years ago, actually. 
And then she came in, and surprisingly enough, because I, I had wanted a, vo a female vocalist since the 90s. Mm -hmm. I, I, for some reason, this is pre-Evanescence and all that stuff. Yeah. Like the gathering and theater of tragedy and stuff that you hear that's European, that it was kind of cool, lacuna coil. Yeah, they're great. You know, and I was like, I want to get a female vocalist and maybe even have a, a guy do some layering, you know, growly or stuff, because I thought that lacuna coil thing was kind of cool, but I didn't want it to sound like that. Yeah. But so anyway, she came in and um, we didn't change any of the arrangements mm -hmm. and they were pretty busy and we were writing them where we're like, maybe there could be vocals here, but we were kind of just, there were no rules really because mm -hmm. we didn't have any, we didn't have to worry about it with any vocals. That's the beautiful thing about instrumentals is that there aren't any rules, yeah, yeah. you know, so you're kind of free. But so she came in and she put vocals over about seven or eight of the songs and then we wrote a couple more. And then um, we got the, the deal with Pavement uh, 2019, and um, we kind of went from there. We did a video, um, which we filmed um, on South Mountain. Oh, really? Yeah, we actually three locations, uh, Camp, Camp Verde right there on the river. And huh. then we did uh, South Mountain at Dobbins Peak. And really? that little There's that little stone <laughs> hut. I didn't know that. Yeah, and then, um, then we filmed some of it in the studio. But it, she came in and just crushed it, man, like – one of the most professional vocalists I've ever worked with. And like I said, she didn't, we didn't have to change any of the arrangements, which that's kind of shocking, really. No, normally you're moving stuff around. And so she worked with you guys instead yeah, of, yeah. And, and it was, you know, it, was, it worked really well. Um, so that was cool. And uh, it was exactly what I was looking for because I know now there's a lot of female vocalists, but it's like I always wanted to have a really good female vocalist because um, I like clean vocals. Yes, yeah, so I. I really like clean vocals, but I really like if a female can do it well. I know now you kind of, it's peripheral, you know, you see that all over the place, uh, but uh, that was something I had wanted for many, many years. So it was really cool to be able to finally find somebody. And she's just like into the same stuff we're into. She's into face warning and, really? you know, a lot of the progressive stuff where it's hard to find a girl that even likes that kind of music. Yeah, or heard of much it. Much less can, <laughs> yeah, heard of it or can sing, you know, but so that was uh, how that came about. And uh, that's been pretty, pretty fun. So while we're on that subject, we're talking about busy progressive bands. Who do you think is kind of blowing up, and what do you listen to right now? Um, I love Animals as Leaders, so Periphery. Yes. Those guys have been around for a while, but it's like, it's just, you go, these guys, are, are they even human? Yeah. You know, Aliens, you know, Matt Garska. Yeah. Like, he's probably one of the top guys, but I love Matt Helpern because not only just what he does on the drums, but... He's like an entrepreneur, man. He's this producing guy. a lot. I yeah. mean, he's got that. He had that band Happy thing, and you're like, these guys are really figuring out ways to make money while they're on tour. I mean, they're giving lessons, yeah. You know, at, at the venues and online, and I, I just really respected that because I always thought there was a, a market for online drum lessons, even in the late '90s. Except for the technology wasn't there. Everybody yeah. thought I was crazy when I said, if, "What if you took a drum cam and you?" Try to do lessons on a computer, and everybody thought it was nuts. But yeah. back then, like, YouTube didn't even exist. No. And everybody laughed at it. And then there's, like, these guys, like, once the technology was there, you got, like, Mike Johnston and uh, Matt Helpern, and you're, like, these guys just – and now they've got all these sound packs and all the, the sample kits and all that, and yeah. you just got to go, wow, these guys are on top of it. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's going to sound weird, kind of a subject bring it up. Do you, do you feel like the next part of evolution of, you know, progressing this and – uh, music progressing, it's, uh, like it's almost kind of like cyborgness. Like I mean, I feel like we're gonna get so like in tuned and layers and layers. How do you see that kind of evolving with software? I know that's kind of a far fetched question. Oh, no, not really, because I think um, 
for a long time, I think people fought it, and I wasn't a big drum machine guy or a drum mm-hmm. programmer. I because for me it was always easier easier to just try to play it, mm-hmm. uh, even if I'm not perfect, and then hash it out and just keep doing it till you get it better. And but now you have to realize like there's there's an industry in itself just for programming drums. Well, I think just the idea of starting your own recording room in your house is a lot more. Yeah, it's feasible. <laughs> you know, it's you know, feasible. Like, even in the nineties, it was like half a million dollars just to get a yeah, board. You know what I mean? Right. Like, I mean the 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 cost has come down, and it's so interesting. And that's I've never been really much on the production side up until the last few years. Yeah, same here. Because it was always somebody else doing it. It's yeah. not that I didn't want to do it. It's like these guys were already good at it, and I didn't have the time to learn it. Yeah, I don't think I'd start touching this stuff until a year half ago, a year and a half ago. You know, I'd done some minor stuff on some of these little eight-track digital where you're kind of throwing a, you know, I had a TD7 for mm-hmm. years. You know, I literally still have it, mm-hmm. and I did a lot of demos with this thing, and I was like, this is pretty cool, mm-hmm. just to be able to throw it on a demo and nobody can hear it. Like we were doing this stuff in apartments. <laughs> you know, seriously, we, yeah. that first band I was telling you about, uh-huh. we, we were in an apartment, uh, Metro Village, uh-huh. and we were all with headphones, we were all in line, but you could hear, the, the only thing you could hear was the singer screaming his ass off. <laughs> so it, they probably, the neighbors probably thought somebody was getting murdered over there, yeah. and it, so it was kind of ridiculous, but we made it work, yeah. and we actually, we submitted that demo to Metal Blade, and Brian Slagle actually hand wrote a letter back to us, really? he wanted to hear more material, I'm like, must not sound too bad because no. if he didn't think it sounded at least decent, he's not even going to waste his time. Yeah. So I guess what my question is: Do you think it's a it's a good thing for everyone to have access to like that stuff, like plugins, etc.? Like, yeah. do you, so you think it's actually a good thing that everyone have a room in the house that what they went to? Yeah. I mean, learn about. Learn, I guess if I could give anybody advice coming up now, because it's so different than when we were growing up. Mm-hmm. Learn as much as you can about the entire industry. Not even just about production, but uh-huh. the business side. But, yeah, but learn as much as you how can. How much would it cost you guys to go record back in the 90s? Oh, I mean, thousands, you know, hundreds of, not, uh, you know, thousands of dollars for a demo. Yeah, that's crazy. Very expensive. I mean, even now you can pay ten grand for an album at a studio. Yeah, but you can also start your own little home right, studio for right, 10 grand. <laughs> right. But, you know, there's some great studios out there, and you can get a great sound. And if you have the cash and you just want to go in there and no, not yeah, worry about it. Respectively, yeah. And that, having someone that has an ear to help you, yeah, I like, think, is where the value really is. Right. So it's like at the end of the day, um, I think there's a lot of value in, in learning it at your own pace and, and having a at least a cursory knowledge of it because yeah. why not? It's not going to hurt anything. No. And the stuff's a lot cheaper than it was. Yeah. You can get a really good product. Yeah, that's the difference. So I guess the, the coming out of that, I just think that I think it's going to push the limits and limits and limits and limits. I, I I'm really curious to see how that kind of goes. Yeah, it's it's hard to say because obviously you don't really need labels anymore. I mean, you have you have a, a, a you know submit button pretty much on every platform now. I mean, yeah, um, the a lot of you know because I've dealt with some entertainment attorneys and kind of that are in the scene that are actual musicians and just. I watch a lot of webinars and I follow a lot of people that are starting their own businesses. And it's not like it was 20 or 30 years ago where it was kind of a big deal. Mm-hmm. And even when you were signed back then, you were probably going into debt. Yeah. You weren't going to make a lot of money, loan. you know, yeah. um, unless you're like a big pop star or you like if you're like a Metallica where you're like just selling out arenas, of course. But yeah. like a lot of these bands that you think – they were pretty big, but they didn't make as much money no. as you would have thought because they were. It was all going back to the label. Yeah, so it's almost like a student loan, kind of like. Yeah. 
mentality. You and know? you're going to own that. You're going to owe that for the rest of your life, yeah. probably. Yeah. It's really hard to sustain it. And then you hear about, I mean, I watch a lot of documentaries about musicians, of course, from back in the day. And most of them got ripped off. And they didn't even own most of I the property. I think they were just caught in a moment of excitement. And, you know, like, sure. we made it. You know, like, let's go. Right. And then the label ended up owning most of that stuff. And, you know, a lot of times when you go into the studio and you have uh, a deal, the, the label owned the masters Ooh. and all the uh, recordings. So a lot of the guys didn't even own their own music because that was part of the contract where they're going to pay for the studio time, but they're going to own the masters. And that's why you hear all this stuff now where they're trying to get their masters back or they're selling their catalog. Mm -hmm. Hey, I can't be mad at them because those old school bands, it's like, they deserve that money, and they yeah. a lot of them got ripped off. And the fact that they still are able to make any money off it now, hey, if you can make a hundred million dollars off your back catalog, God well, bless yeah, you. Well, I've seen a lot of bands just sell their catalogs. Like Motley Crue, yeah. I think they made a hundred. I don't know how much it was. It's but hundreds of millions. Yeah. Yeah, I, th I see a lot of like bands that are kind of even the retired years, kind of just going, okay, here, use it for Adam Sandler movie, whatever. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. like at the end of the day, it's like how much more money could you make off it if you didn't do it? So yeah. you might as well. I mean, those guys don't need the money, but. That's their money. Well, so it's their kids' can, kids' money, and yeah. yeah, I mean, it's their whatever, you know. I mean, if you can sell your stuff for a couple hundred million, even if you're already, you know, you have quite a bit of money, you know, you might. I think it's they're just trying to see how much money they could potentially make in the future. Because I almost wonder how, when they buy those catalogs, how they're going to make that money back. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot more likeliness or it's a likelihood of them making money back over a long period of time because it's got that name recognition and those are classic songs and mm -hmm. there's a reason why they're buying that stuff because they're they're gonna put it out there and like you said commercials yeah. and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. So kind of we're on the studio subject. Um, what drums have you experienced in a studio setting and what do you want to try? I mean, I know we talked about being a drums before we kind of went on to this, but yeah. What was like your go-to like kind of coming up though like? I use um uh well I've used my I've got a Grand Star or not a well I've got a Grand Star two Tama Grand Star two Birch kit I've used that since '93 uh, in a lot of recordings and a lot of studios Birch right yeah that's a Birch kit uh -huh. um I, it was a six piece but then I got the six and uh, eight inch mini timbales well, and then I got an eighteen <laughs> the only the only drum that isn't a tom on it I got an eighteen inch floor tom that is a Ludwig okay it's a maple that's the only yeah. on Tama, but I really wanted an 18, and I, I couldn't find a good Tama one. But that that kit was kind of like my dream kit. It was like the best kit I ever owned at the time. Mm -hmm. And then I ended up getting the, the Catalina Birch, I probably about 12, 13 years ago. And that just had the smaller Toms with the shorter. Yeah. You know, they weren't as deep. Yeah. And I really liked that because the Grand Stars are the deep Toms. Well, you lose a lot of efficiency. So I really liked the smaller. It was 8, 10, 12, mm -hmm. and then a 14. And they sound great. And like I said, it was pretty cheap kit 600 bucks and i just would switch out the snares i use pork pie snares oh, nice. I love this. little squealer and then the bob and then i think i have a 13 inch ludwig but that's where i'm kind of lacking is on the snares and of course you can never have too many kits so that's <laughs> that's what i'm working towards is getting a few more few more higher end kits so i mean um studio setting is like birch kind of your go-to i've learned yeah. that's kind of like because that's what i'm learning myself i think that birch maple is a little boomy for a studio but yeah. I feel like every time I set up a birch kit in here, like it just gets right to the point. Yeah, I, I've always really liked the sound of birch, and um, like I said before, like maple hasn't been on my radar as much. And it's not that they're—I know the Star Classics Tama were made out of maple and had really thin shells, and like Mike Portnoy used those, I yeah, think. Yeah. And I liked his sound, but I just uh, birch—I just preferred it for whatever reason. And then now they've got all these different types of woods that they didn't even have 20, 30 yeah. years ago. So that's the yeah. new. 
frontier, I guess. Yeah, and they're also getting expensive too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, seriously, I mean, eight, ten grand for a kit, but you know, it's like if you got the cash, it's better than wasting it on other stuff. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> so, I, I, what has been your symbol choice? I back in the '80s, Zildjian was big, right? Yeah, yeah. And then when I started playing Sabian, probably early '90s, I went all Sabian. AAX, I really loved them, and I can't remember why, but I just liked Sabian. Oh, not to jump, but did you see that Chad Smith letter? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's, he's going to Pisces, obviously, yeah. but, yeah, I'm just saying that was kind of a little shocking because he's yeah. been a Sabian dude for... 30 years yeah. or 40 years. So, sorry to jump in front of you, but I just, like, that zinged in my brain just now. No, and I, I, and I don't have anything against Sabian or Zildjian, for that matter. Matter yeah. of fact, they're just about every cymbal company out there makes good cymbals, yeah. just like drums. They all have a good line of drums or cymbals. Uh-huh. But I'm a pasty guy. Oh, really? Yeah, and it's. I think it was probably more towards uh, Stuart Copeland. Oh, nice. And um, who, who played them back in the uh, – Nico McBrain played them. Yeah. But then I think uh, once it got to, like, the 90s, Danny Carey. Oh, yeah, that's one of my – And I love the signatures. I played all signatures, but those are really expensive. Yes, and they I are. started buying the Dark Energy. <laughs> yeah, I still have some Dark Energy hi-hats and um, the ride. It was like a $700 ride symbol. Yeah, they're, they're, they cost a drum set worth of, like – Easy. Right. Yeah. But I, I loved them. And then one thing about the signatures, though, I was breaking a lot of them. Really? They, uh, for, you know, they'd last about a decade, and I'd start getting cracks in them on the signatures, and uh, that's heartbreaking. So I started, you know, I'd get the 900, whatever series they had out that was pretty good, but maybe not top line. So I started going with the, like, 900 series and the 20 series I think they had for a while. Yeah. The tw- I liked it. I don't know why they got rid of that line. Yeah, they were good. Yeah. Um, they were so I very used those. washy and kind of bright at the same time. And I also found that the Alpha had, uh, I have a flat, just a flat ride, Alpha flat ride with uh, no bell. Nice. I got that on my left side. Uh. Um, and then uh, their splash symbols are really good on the Alpha. Yeah. Because I was paying 130 bucks for a splash on the signature, and it's like, seriously? Yeah. A little That's a lot. splash, yeah. It sounded great, but... I'll be honest with you. They they're not as maybe I was just hitting them too hard or I think splashes you can make a ZBT splash sound good if you right. wanted to. You know what I mean? Right. <laughs> right. So the Alpha and um, so I got a couple of those, um, but I, I've got a couple of the nine hundred series, so I like those and uh, the hi hats I've got a fourteen and a thirteen dark energy and that ride, it's the Mark II, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, dark energy. Mm-hmm. Um but my on my wish list is that uh, what is it the Moad the Danny Carey purple oh, yeah. one yeah that's kind of what I want to get. It's like twelve hundred bucks, right? Yeah, I think it's about six or seven. I don't know if it's twelve hundred, but if it is, that might be a while before I get it. I've <laughs> always wanted that blue ride. Oh, the Stuart, the Stuart Copeland. Copeland. Yeah, I've never actually seen one in person. Um, I've seen a couple people playing them, but uh, if I were to get one for my left, I'd probably get that Stuart Copeland because I do a lot of I like to do a lot of double ride and double hi hat stuff. Really? Yeah, and. I always have two rides, it, more than two hi-hats, because I, I just think you can do a lot of really cool stuff with two rides and still have a good backbeat. What influenced that for you? Was it just more of like Probably Sean Reiner, and I, the first time I ever saw it, though, was I really liked Scott Rockenfield back in the day, uh-huh. and he did a lot of cool stuff. And I Queen's remember right, right? Queen's right, yeah. yeah. And he, I, I think it was Eyes of a Stranger. He was doing this double China and this double ride thing at the end, or as a matter of fact, it's the beginning and the end, and thought that was really cool and then um then when sean reiner came out i think he when he played on the human album with death um you could hear he's doing some crazy stuff there but i always like to do a solid double kick mm-hmm. with a snare but do some cool patterns with both your hands and not necessarily match your feet mm-hmm. but it kind of to me it made it more interesting and you could kind of put some cool accents in there and still have a cool 
double kick with a solid snare, and I, I really liked doing that. And I, I would say if there's anybody that I saw do it most, it was probably Sean Reiner when, when Focus came out with the Cynic album. Mm -hmm. He was just doing some just absolutely amazing stuff, and he did a lot of that because he was kind of more of a jet. Those guys were jazz guys. Yeah. You know, but metalheads too. Yeah. And that's why that album was so groundbreaking because nobody had ever heard like jazz fusion death metal. Mm. And you knew those guys could play jazz too because it was in there. I mean, it was part of their sound. And um, that really opened up my, my mind to not just keeping a solid pattern on the ride with your one hand, trying to do some busier stuff. And it kind of goes back to the rudimental stuff of paradiddles and double paradiddles and trying to do what you can with your hands and your feet and even even when you're just doing exercises try to get your feet to match your hands too yeah it's funny you say because i literally just put a, a ride somewhere on my left it, trying to do that stuff yeah which i'm not really great at yet but <laughs> i also started I, it took me a long time to do the open hand where yeah. i was doing more stuff with leading with my left and i'm i feel like i'm pretty good at it but i'm still not as articulate so you're right hand primarily yeah but yeah. i do do a lot of stuff with my left hand on the hi-hat and ride but I'm not as accurate as I am with my right, but yeah. I, I'm, I can definitely hold it down, but I know I can do more with my right still. Yeah. It's been a work in progress for a long time. Yeah, that's something you got to work on. That's balance. Um, I noticed you play with a, a lot of electronics, too. When did that kind of start to incorporate it for you? Well, um, first time I ever played electronics was in 94. Um, when I came out here, we met a guy. He had probably about 100 grand worth of gear, and we were just like, where did you get all this stuff? Huh. And he had a TD7, a Roland TD7. And back then, I had never played an electronic kit before that. It was foreign. Yeah, and, and uh, okay, and he had like some of those DA88, some of these really like four or five thousand dollar like uh, recorders. He had like three or four of them, and just you come in a room about this size, and it's just filled with gear. You're like, wow, I mean, we're gonna hang out here for a while. You know, we yeah. were only in town for a couple months. And yeah. He had a TD7, and um, it took me a good six months before I could get comfortable with the uh, inverted beaters. And yeah. it's a it's a it's a lot different beast yeah, than playing a, a V kit, right? Yeah, it's a, it's a different rate of like recoil, I guess you would call it. Yeah, and you know the pads are really solid, and I mean, I played those from '94 for rehearsals, demos, you name it, because I kind of had to. But I did like the um, versatility of all the different sounds you could get out of it, because that was kind of their flagship kit back then yeah simmons was their main competitor pretty much at the time yeah and um like i said that kit still works so i've had to solder some oh, of you it still have it yeah damn still have it so i mean props to roland they make good stuff yeah um but we had to solder some of the connections here and there uh, but well, i mean after 30 years you, you gotta know, fix an old car once in a while yeah, yeah. <laughs> beat the crap out of the thing but it is it is brutal on your body those rubber pads yeah um nothing like a, a v kit so that's where i started and we like i said we were doing demos with that and it sounded pretty good mm -hmm. most people didn't know it was an electronic kit um if you do it right um it sounded really tight and then um I kind of moved away from that because like, I want to play acoustics more, but um, so we did more with the acoustic kits too. Whenever we could, we'd build up our studio and try to record ourselves. And anytime we could go into the studio, we would do it. But then when the when the uh, mesh heads came out, I was like, man, these things are like yeah. driving a Cadillac. And then when I started playing with X, I started playing with my TD7 because they had a house, but it wasn't soundproofed, so mm -hmm. we couldn't use a full kit. Um, and then the bass player had a, his brother had like a TD20. Mm -hmm. And he brought that over, and I was like, man, this, I love this thing. So I played that for many years over uh, uh, with them, just rehearsing. And, you know, you can you can do a lot with them. You know, you don't necessarily have to play them live, 
Yeah. But, I mean, you do see people playing them live, like a lot of cover bands I see playing with them live. And, matter of fact, I think even Trans-Siberian Orchestra plays like a oh, rolling kit. Really? Uh, he, they use real cymbals, but they use the pads. Yeah, uh, when you were recording, were you, uh, this is something I'm kind of learning right now. I'm learning how to record MIDI. Were you recording MIDI or just a line in? A lot of the times it was just line in, but I'm doing. Uh, I'm trying to move more towards the MIDI where at least if you can. Sound place stuff. Yeah, sound replacement. Um, so the beautiful thing about that is you can make it sound like whatever you want after the fact. Yeah. You're still playing it. As you mentioned, uh, Matt Helfern, like he's got some get good drums. That's like the one I want to try out get here. Get good drums. Yeah. yeah. Though, that's Nolly, I think, is helping him with that, the, the yeah. bass player. Yeah. Those guys, I mean, I saw videos of them just literally taking each instrument and cymbal, and they're getting like two or 3,000 hits dynamically of each instrument cymbal. Jesus. It's crazy, but yeah. that's a science in and of it of itself. Like getting those s- samples, and I mean, you see that now. Like Luke Luke Holland's got yeah. one too. Yeah. Um, so that's probably a pretty going to be a pretty big industry. But, so you, but my honest opinion, I mean, all, all appreciation to those guys you just mentioned, but you think that hurts the organic the organic side of it, or you think it, because I mean, you don't want everything to sound you know like yeah. on a grid, but you think it hurts or help? I think, I think you can go overboard with it, like, to some degree, but I think a lot of albums were used, they used drum machines on them, people don't even know it till this day. Yeah. So, it's like... When you listen to bands like Beer Factory and stuff, that's actually all punched yeah, out. Yeah, know? but at the end of the day, it makes sense. It's actually part of their sound. It, like, I think you mentioned it earlier, like, Cyborg. Yeah. That's what I used to call Cynic, like, Cyborg Metal. Yeah. It's, it almost is part of their sound, like, Fear Factory... Yeah. Like, to me, it's like, that's kind of cool. Then I saw him live, and he, like, did it. And I was yeah. like, oh, shit, okay. <laughs> no, like, it's like Thomas Hakey from yeah. Sugar. Like, he, Sugar, he, he didn't come out until, like, the third or fourth album and tell, him, tell people that he was programming that stuff. But really? he can pull it off live. Like, yeah. it's not like he's doing it to... I think Bleed is, like, the modern-day Hosford teacher. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right, that's the one people love. But yeah, it's one of those things where... Um, I mean, I saw those guys open up for Tool on the 10,000 really? Days tour, Meshuggah. Yeah. And... Um, he can definitely do it. So to me, it's like, if it's out of necessity or maybe you want to control the sound of the mic bleed, because I think that's why a lot of people want to do it is more for the control and it, they can control the sound better. I think the simplicity, and I think like, you know, just be on, I think it's easy to spend more time behind your laptop or console, or whatever, than you are behind your drums. Right. <laughs> and I love the organic and, and, yeah. and, you know, without the technology too, don't get me wrong, but I think that. We're not going to go backwards. Like no, no, They're probably going to see more and more of it. So it's like absolutely you might not. as well embrace it a little bit. I just want to learn as much as I can. Yeah. And if I can play it, I'm going to play it. Uh-huh. Um, but it's not a bad idea to learn how to program and learn some of this other stuff, too, because there's guys getting gigs out there programming drums for bands, too. Yeah, that's something, that, like I said, I'm starting to scratch the surface on, and I'm like, oh. Yeah. I've got yeah, I've got Superior Drummer 3, and then um, so I'm trying to learn that. But mm. I honestly enjoy just hashing it out more personally yeah but i get there is a there is a place for it and uh if i were to tell myself i probably would have learned this stuff sooner yeah really just, i'm in the same boat there you know and it's at, at the end of the day i mean i, I got the rest of my life to figure it out so yeah no, no worries yeah so i i noticed you play with a are you using like uh loops or with timmy or because i noticed you play with a, a rolling pad are you kind of triggering like uh, sequences or anything no, like? I, I play all that stuff but really? um we did play with um we did play with bass tracks and guitar tracks because we probably auditioned 30 or 40 guitarists really? and about 20 bass players. And there were a couple of guys that would really be able to pull it off, but it was almost like they would come and tell us, this stuff's got a lot going on, and I don't know if I want to yeah. take the time to learn it. Like, yeah. And, I, hey, I can appreciate that. Don't yeah. waste your time. Don't waste ours. But So I we did play live with a track, which is 
really nerve-wracking. Mm-hmm. Can't, yeah. miss, can't miss a note. Yeah, that's like driving a limousine and not seeing what's behind you. But the t- party's in the back. Right, <laughs> right. But I, a lot of bands do it now, and I know some people don't like it, but it's like we did it out of necessity. Man. I like it for the sake of rehearsal because, like, I, I do and don't because I can sit here for four hours and practice the set over and over and over right. and over again, and exactly. it's going to be like. Exactly. But at the same time, <clears throat> you're not really playing with the crowd. You're playing with your machine, you know what I mean? Right. And so the other stuff, like a lot of those intros that I wrote, I, I played those live. Like, really? yeah, I played those all on the Octopad, and that instrument kind of changed a lot for me. Mm-hmm. Um because I'm a big Roland uh, proponent just because I like their stuff. Yeah, they're the best in my opinion. I, have a, I, I just got a, a V-drum self kit myself. Yeah, it's, you know, I was going to get a TD-30, and right when I was getting one, they stopped making them. Mm-hmm. And then the TD-50 came out. And I didn't like the first one, but the one they've got now, the TD-50KV2. Yeah. I mean, it's probably the most powerful one they've made. And yeah. just the way you can do, like, 16 to 30 channels when you're mixing. There, it's just, that's what I'm looking for. Yeah. But um, to, on the Octopad side, um, I could start doing melodic percussion again. It took me back to the xylophone and the marimba and all yeah. this stuff where it wasn't just about beats and hand percussion, but I, I originally got it for the hand percussion and the world percussion that there's no way I'm ever going to get all these different instruments. No, you're not the Grateful Dead. For 800 bucks, <laughs> you can yeah. get 670 Well, just imagine sounds. trying to bring that to a stage and, like, tell the sound guy, I need a mic position here. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, it would be great. Like, if, I'm ever, if I ever come into a bunch of money, yeah, I probably will buy yeah. one of all of those things. Yeah. But for the Octopad, like, I had a lot, of, I've gotten a really, a lot of compliments on it, like, with guys I was playing in with a cover band, we were doing an acoustic gig. I'd use it for just more percussion and tambourine and simple stuff. But they would always be like, man, that thing sounds really good. Mm-hmm. And I just started writing all these pieces, and it was really fun for me because I'm like, I'm not even writing drum beats. These are things that a drummer might be able to appreciate. Mm-hmm. And um, so I started writing a lot of the intros. And matter of fact, some of the stuff on the Vex, uh, Vex tunes, I, I did a lot of stuff, tabla and just really cool oh, stuff. Yeah. And yeah. That, how, how can you really recreate that live without, you know what I mean? You could use a sample, but at the end of the day, to me, I, I really pride, I w- I pride myself in trying to pull off that stuff live. Mm-hmm. Like I said, the c- playing with the tracks, you know, it, it is what it is. Uh, I would have preferred to play with the bass player. Uh, not With Vex, we were a full band. Yeah. The bass player played cello. And yeah. That was I really remember that, cool. actually. Um, and that's what kind of made us stand out, I think, was with the cello, because people would come there and they'd just be surprised to see somebody no, playing that, cello. That, I remember that. I vividly remember seeing you guys at Joe's Grotto and going, what the fuck? You know he's I mean? a great cellist, man. Yeah. He's a great bassist, but yeah. when he plays cello, it's just really low, and it's you just don't see it that often, you know? No. But I, I was you know, able to integrate that, but I wanted to do it to where it made sense, and it was just, just for the sake of doing it. Mm-hmm. I wanted it to sound cool, but I wanted to play it. Mm-hmm. And don't get me wrong, even with them, sometimes in between songs we would do like little sequences but they were like samples this like weird clips from movies but we we played all that stuff live you know and it was really cool and uh, i i love the octopad it, it I, I started writing entire like i've written probably two or three albums worth of material on that thing really yeah and that's kind of what i've been focusing on for the last couple of years actually so i've always been really interested in learning tabla drums obviously danny carey is my influence on that yeah did you just dive in with that or was there anywhere you were kind of studying because i know there's a certain rhythm count you have to do steve smith really got into there for a little yeah. bit and it's like a weird indian count you know? yeah they play in like threes and different yeah time signatures and to be honest with you i didn't really study it i was yeah. just going with what i thought sounded cool yeah that's probably what i'll um, end up doing and <laughs> with him it's like i think he's actually studied with tabla players yeah. and he's playing real tablas um 
and I before I got the the Octopad, I got one of the Synthasia, the purple pads, yeah. you know, the ones that created four and Danny Carey. Yeah. And I used it. He used it with Battery Three, I think. And I had just one of them, and it had like seven zones on one pad, which yeah. I really liked. And I used that with Vex for a couple of years first, but problem was is you're you're depending on that computer, and sometimes that thing fails. Yeah. So I didn't like. Because if, if it didn't work, then you're just kind of, you have to ditch that. You can't play that part. Yeah. You know, I hated that. With the Octopad, it's plug and play. And as long as you got that thing plugged in and they've got you through the PA, yeah. that thing doesn't mess up. Yeah. So that's one of the reasons I got it. But it, it also sounds amazing. Well, the, I'm not going to say any other brands, but I play with other brands. And they literally will pick up, like, the bass drum triggering, like, at full volume. Yeah. See, I'm not going to say brands, but I'm saying that Roland doesn't have that problem. That's why I like their stuff. Because, you know, you hit a bass from here, you're like, yeah. crap. Yeah, the, the false triggering. Yeah. The only time I've really had problems with that um, is when I've got the, because I, I, I actually hooked the, the Roland up with the Octopad as a full kit with two kicks, mm-hmm. a hi-hat and a ride. Sometimes you might get those external, sometimes still off yeah. the vibration, very rarely. Mm-hmm. But I don't use the external pads uh, live. It's just the Octopad. Yeah. And it sounds great, and I'm having fun with it. So um, the way I look at it is it's just – it's given me another um, – some other colors I can use where I'm not just focused focused on just playing beats. Yeah. You know, and the melody, and I'm writing actual parts where it's almost like a vocal pattern or something. Yeah. And then I put percussion underneath it and beats under that. And to me, it's like, I don't care if anybody hears it. It's really cool. And it's almost like soundscapes, um, like soundtrack music, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What, what kind of DAW are you using? Are you just kind of... Um, I've got a digital performer. Oh, nice. 9.5, I think. It's People don't use it. Not that many people use it. But mm-hmm. it's a really powerful program. But it's not super intuitive for me. Mm-hmm. So I, I, for the last two years, I've been just really just trying to get the basics of recording and getting the signals and... I'm not even really good at editing or anything <laughs> or the effects, but it's like yeah. if I get the parts down, I can do all that other stuff later, yeah, right? So yeah. that's kind of what I've been focusing on. So um, <laughs> I kind of jumping back to Demi Aura. Obviously, we all came to a standstill about two years ago, but what's it, what's in plan for that band? Like, well, um, right as the album got released, there was a lineup change. The, the, the one of the main members left just as the album was getting released, so that really put a damper on any touring because we were we're still getting offered tours and. Um, so that, we, we weren't able to follow through on any of the touring obligations. So what we kind of decided to do, uh, the singer and I, Chelsea, we're, we're going to try to write a second album. Nice. And just see what we can do with it. Um, the keyboard player, he's kind of working on some of his own stuff. So we're going to try to see if he still wants to do, like, maybe write the guitar and keyboards. Mm-hmm. That was kind of the goal. Um, and he seems like he was down with that. So we're going to try to write a second album. And uh, see how it goes as a three-piece mm-hmm. and, you know, just see what happens. But uh, the, the goal was to put out another album because we have a five-year deal. Really? So we could, however many albums we can pop out. Hmm. So we'd probably do another album. And uh, Chelsea moved, She actually, the vocalist, she actually moved to Virginia Beach um, last year. Mm-hmm. But in this day and age, it's like, to me, that's not necessarily a, a bad thing because you can write albums and do entire albums. Some of these bands that are doing it are entirely different countries for and brief, stuff. For, yeah, I mean, they literally live two states away. Right. So we, we weren't too worried about that. Um, and I, Jonathan just moved up to uh, Flagstaff. So everybody's a little bit spread out now. Mm-hmm. But we're like, you know, if we can do the file thing, the sky's the limit. So if you guys do put a tour together, is it going to be a national or international? Uh, probably would be just um, national at first, but we're we're just really trying to 
figure out what we want to do on the second album, and then we'll try to see if we can pull in other members. And we, we got to get the new material down, too, because I don't know if we would focus as much on the first album if it was an all-new lineup or at least a pretty big lineup. But uh, Pavement's been really cool. Um, some friends of ours, Images of Eden, they, they, they signed with them a couple years before us, and they just got off a couple big tours. Um, so there's always a lot of opportunity. It's just we have to put new material together and put a new lineup together, basically, um, to see where it goes. Nice. So what would be the best place to check that stuff out? And, like, obviously with your drumming, do you have a, a channel or a place you would kind of recommend checking out with your solo stuff? Um, all the, uh, the other stuff I'm working on now, um, I've got my own YouTube channel. Um, but I mainly for Demi Aura, you can just go to DemiAura.com, and then there's all the different uh, Facebook, Instagram, and we have a YouTube channel there. Um, I've got a Facebook uh, page for myself, uh, just Keith Heaney Drummer, and a lot of times I'll po post stuff there and stuff from my YouTube channel. So I'm um, working on getting my site back up. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just going to be KeithHeaney.com. I had that for years. Easy um, enough. Yeah, so I'm going to get that back up, and that's going to be kind of a hub, I guess, mm -hmm. where I'm going to put a lot of the, the, the soundscapes. And I kind of want to have it uh, more of a, a hub for all the stuff I'm working on, like yeah. I do a lot of other stuff, for like lyrics and all, all, all sorts of stuff. But I want to be able to put this new project up there because – the cool thing about it is that um, it's not necessarily just going to be something that I'm hoping that a drummer's going to listen to. I, I almost want it to be something that your average listener can just kind of chill to. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Where it's not like it's not like a drum solo album. You know what I mean? Where mm -hmm. I'm just doing chops. It's I'm going out of my way to try to write almost songs, but they're like ambient. Like, like yeah, ambient. Yeah. Because I'm really into a lot of that type uh, of. Do you ever experiment with synths and all that? I. Do you have a MIDI keyboard that I just got uh, a couple months ago? So I'm gonna try to do some pads and stuff. Yeah, with, but I'm not a keyboard player. Me either. But I, I like just a little. I love the way it sounds. I love it. <laughs> yeah. I, I love, especially even. I know it sounds cheesy, but even some of the '80s stuff. Yeah. You know, it, it kind of it's. Uh, I'm kind of a nostalgic person, but I, I love synth, and uh, that's one instrument I wish I would have learned a long time ago. Well, just a, I just want to learn chords and yeah. you know, like just basic. Sure. You know orchestrating you know yeah because yeah. i mean you can do a lot with just chords yeah, you can and fill pads. Up a, a lot of empty space right you don't yeah. even need bass really like, yeah so that's kind of where i'm moving towards it's just i need to get some good vsts some good patches mm -hmm. for some good some good keyboard sounds and that's that's my next move nice so uh, i want to ask you i know you've been in the, the phoenix scene but <clears throat> who would you recommend checking out that you've networked through the years what are some good drummers you like to call out that uh, you're friends with here locally yeah oh there's a lot of them there's so many great just players out I here. noticed you were in a Phoenix area drummer's hat, and uh, yeah. those are all great guys. Yeah, man. And I've heard, like, a lot of compliments from guys from different cities that are in that group, and they said there's nothing like that in the other city. Yeah, I mean, you've got guys like Todd Sutton <coughs> and, and these big yeah. drummers that are in there, and they do clinics out here. And Need and, a favor, want to do a favor. You know, like Nat, and he's, he, he put that group together, I think. He's been on the show. And um, he's a super nice guy. Yeah, um, guy. He plays all over the place, and I, I think I've done some gigs with him when he was in uh, Whiskey Sticks and some other bands. Yeah. But Anyway, um, yeah, so that's a great group. But as far as local drummers, um, Mundo. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I mean, I've seen that guy since he was in Bionic Jive. Yeah, yeah. He's got stage presence for miles and for when days. When I first saw him, he was in Bionic Jive. And I was friends with James because I worked with James as a guitar player at the time. But he's wearing that mask. And guy he was like, mask. Yeah, he was standing on his drums. And I was like, Jesus, Yeah, just dude. the fact that he had that mask on. I was like, that cool. That yeah. guy's that guy's. And he just, he's pouring sweat. He's on top of his drums. Like, you could tell, like, he's. 
Yeah, the stage he's... presence. I was like, I was like, man, that's that's what I want to see. He's yeah. an entertainer, but not only that, he is a, he's a badass on the drum. So yeah. Mundo, uh, I really dig Michael Olson. Okay, Animus Complex. I yeah. think he's in Vector and heard a little bit of great Warhead. stuff. This guy's a machine, and uh, I just I'm a really big fan because it's progressive, you know, metal. But uh, I love um, everything those guys do. I've pretty much followed every album of mm -hmm. theirs, and I love all of the, the musicians in that band. They're just I love their style. Mm -hmm. um, but he's a great drummer. I really appreciate what he does, and I uh, try to pay attention because he's he's definitely uh, got a lot a lot of great chops mm -hmm. on top of it. Um, Zach. Oh yeah, he's been on the show too. <laughs> Zach, I, I've been watching Zach. His his uh, his oh god, I'm blanking out, but his patterns he's doing with the uh, the songo beats and stuff oh, like yeah. that. That he's like getting better and better oh, and yeah. better. Like I see that. Yeah, I think he was studying with Brett Fred Fredrickson. Oh yeah, and bummer. that guy's a monster. He was a monster. The bummer he passed away is what I mean. But yeah. like yeah, that, that was kind of a shock for everybody too. Yeah, and I I remember seeing him way back in the day at the Guitar Center drum off. Him yeah. and. Uh, Dave Small, they did this thing at the end of the drum off where they got on these V Dave kits. Dave Small was in the F5, right? That's right. Yes. They were going back and <laughs> forth on this V kit for like 20 minutes after the drum off, and everybody's jaw was just dropped. Yeah. Amazing drummer. Uh, and I, I actually was going to try to take lessons from him, too. Uh, I was like, man, I really need to. It's been a long time since I've taken any lessons, and I was kind of wanting to do that. But unfortunately, you know, he passed. Mm. Um, Zach uh, Seawolf. I actually started watching him back in the 90s. He was in a band called Excessive Bleeding, and I would see him playing at these, like, parties out in people's yards and stuff, and it was totally, like, just death metal, you know, but this guy was a beast back then. Mm -hmm. Then he was in a band called The Awakening, and that was Ray from Sigmonic was on guitar. As a matter oh. of fact, it was Sigmonic, basically, yeah. with a female vocalist. Oh, really? And that was, like, one of my favorite You know what bands. I have to say about those guys? I had a rehearsal room next door to them. Uh-huh. They were never not in there practicing. Oh, those guys are great. Sick no, I'm mean, like, I'm serious. Like, I like, I would get there just stinking there before the band get in there, and they would be still just shredding for like yeah. six hours. I'm like, that's yeah. when I really started really following not only Zach but all those guys, mm -hmm. like the the Awakening uh, and Joy was the vocalist. I really loved them. I used to go to Joe's or wherever they were playing. Man, it was like I'd follow them around like a, you know, a groupie mm -hmm. or whatever. <laughs> and I loved that band. And then of course when Sigmonic, um, I love Sigmonic. They're really yeah. good. And uh, been following Zach for a long time. He's a he's a great drummer, really cool guy, and I've shared the stage with him a bunch of times. And yeah, yeah. He's probably one of my top guys around town. That yeah. I like. there's a lot though. Um, uh, Jonathan Bond from Fifth Density. Okay. They're like progressive metal. Um, they put out a couple albums. That that band's really good. And obviously Mundo's and uh, Don't Panic. So that's a, yeah. I really I'm really dig digging that stuff too. I, I'm thinking my catch your next show as well. Yeah, I just saw him a couple times with Sevilla. Um, yeah, that I've been following them. In the different iterations, um, there's been a couple times when Mundo wasn't playing drums for him. Yeah. But I've seen him a bunch of times with him, and they're really original. I love. They're kind of unique. Yeah, it's relaxing it's, music, but heavy. Yeah, it's just you know, it's it's they've got their own sound. And so those are the, the ones I can think of. Um, Sorry to throw that on you. I don't want to miss out. I don't want to miss. <laughs> no, I guess I, I'm just trying to like get more local guys on the show, and I, yeah. I want to start doing some more group shows. And you yeah, know. those guys are all great. Um, I, Sounds like you've had a couple of them on, on the show. I know Mundo. majority of them actually. <laughs> but um, so those are the, the top guys I can think of. I know I'm forgetting some, but those are. But there's even guys that are in tribute bands and cover bands that oh. are really good. That are these guys are playing four or five times a week. Yeah. Um, like I don't know if you know Jason Weedman. Sounds familiar. He's he's I'm in, so bad with he's in Traveler. He but he's also in like I've seen this guy play two or three gigs a day. Really. Like 
I'm like, I, I, I was joking around with him once, and I go on Facebook. He was posting as like, you're like the Kenny Aronoff yeah. of Phoenix, because like yeah. you're everywhere. Like I almost think there's more than one of you. Yeah, yeah. So he's one of those types of dudes, but um, but he just he's all over the place, plays all the time, and I I gotta give my hats off to him because that's 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 tough. Yeah, we're sure. playing a couple gigs a, a a week, much less a couple times. Yeah, we gotta a balance a job, family, whatever. Like right. So yeah. he's I really enjoy uh, Jason's playing too. So he's a, he's a good guy, good. Good play. He was actually in Vex before I was. Really? Yeah, he was the drummer before I was. Um, well, there there was one other guy too. So I think, yeah, he might have been the first guy. But yeah, he's a good drummer. So yeah, those are some of the guys I can think of, and I, I don't want to forget anybody. But those are the ones that just come to my mind yeah. right out of the gate. But there there's a ton of them. Yeah. All right. Well, Keith, I think it's been a real great pleasure to have you in the studio here, and I think we should definitely do this again as your band starts to kind of move forward again. Absolutely. Um, I would say um, on the other topic um my one of my big pushes right now is um, i'm hoping to either by the end of this year or early next year get out some of the the other stuff i was talking about it's called percussive frequencies uh -huh. and i'm going to be starting a site on that in a page so that stuff will be probably i'll be publishing it and stuff on my on my channels and stuff on my youtube mm -hmm. my website so that's going to be a big push and are you available for session work or billing gigs or are you kind of just focusing primarily on doing aura um, focusing more on Demi Aura writing the, the album, but even more so completing the percussive frequencies thing. Because I've got two albums worth of material, maybe three, mm -hmm. and I could almost probably release them as single songs, but I want to have kind of collections too, so it's like if well, anybody's interested, I can kind of hear We're in a day and age where I think one song at a time is not really a bad idea either. Right. You know Some I mean? of them are kind of long too, because... Yeah. I listen to a lot of meditation stuff. I do really? a lot of meditating and new age stuff that doesn't even have a lot of drums. But this is almost something where I think you could have it as, like I said, soundtrack music, video game, movies, um, or just kind of meditate to it. Do you think meditation has helped you with your drumming? It's helped me just in life general. You think so? Yeah, because... I'm kind of a high-strung dude. You don't. You seem laid back. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm better now. I'm better now. Yeah, but, um, it's helped me because seriously, I, I I'm kind of a I worry about stuff. I oh, think yeah, a lot. I, I'm you on know? the same frequency there. But meditating and just mindset, I realize that a lot of the stuff that happens in your life, you can kind of control to some extent. Yeah, and perception. That's your mindset and the meditation part is just you need to calm down. You know, just let it all go. And that, it kind of changed my life. I'd say about maybe less than 10 years ago, I started getting more into the manifestation and, and mindset type stuff. Uh -huh. But I knew it was real because we've all predicted things or had things that we, we thought were going to happen, yeah. whether it's good or bad. And it's almost like... Yeah, kind of weird, right? It's weird and you're like... But I, I'm not saying psychic, but it's like I, I do believe that your mindset has a lot to do with certain things that can happen in your life and directions. I'm not saying you can control it entirely, but I think it can have a big um, impact. And if you're constantly focusing on negative stuff, it's going to happen. It's probably going to have more negative stuff happening, but if yeah. you're focusing on the positive stuff, it's a lot more likely that good stuff's going to happen. Bad stuff's always going to happen. Yeah. It's just how you kind of respond to it. And then when I realized that uh, if you try not to dwell on that stuff and try to focus on the positive and the, the silver lining that, you know, you might as well because that other stuff's going to happen anyway. But if that's all you're ever thinking about, you're going to have a pretty miserable life. Yeah, it's funny because I was just talking about this with someone this morning. But if I were a newcomer to this, what would you look into music-wise and studying that kind of stuff? As far as like more of meditation? Yeah. Age? 
Um, I've been listening to Carlos Art, our Carlos Nakai, mm -hmm. since the early '90s. He's actually from Tucson. He's a Native American flute player. Really? And I know it sounds kind of odd, uh -huh. but it's it's literally one of those things where you're hearing it, you're like so relaxed, but yet your mind can picture all these things at the same time. So it's your mind is kind of over thinking, but you're really relaxed. And he plays with. Um, Will Eaton, where they play like these strange, like harp guitars, almost like um, Mike, Michael Hedges, where there's like an acoustic and then a harp. And this guy's like a luthier, and he plays with uh, Native American flute, and he'll play some accompaniment with guitar, and then sometimes like Native American percussion and chanting. Mm -hmm. And there's one album in particular, I used to go to sleep to it every night, it's called Ancestral Voices. Really? And it's one of those things, for whatever reason, it just calms me down. And I, I could listen to it almost every night, mm -hmm. sometimes even several times a day. Mm -hmm. And it, it was just really relaxing. So that if there was any album I could recommend, that would be the one. And if, I'm sure if you go to any of the streaming services, you can find it. But it's R. Carlos Nakai. And he's got a ton of albums. So all of them are really good. But that was one that really stood out. And yeah, I wish more people would focus stuff like that instead of going to, you know, other bad things, you know. But, like, yeah. I, I really think that would be a culture shift in itself. Yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I know it sounds kind of cheesy, you know, Native American flute, what's that? But it's so calming, and it's but like... It I think just I think just the idea of meditation or, like, relaxing, it's just, like, it's we're, like, we're almost trying to, like, as Americans, push that stuff out as soon as we hear it. Right, because yeah. people want to... They don't want to change their mindset or they don't want to change their habits, yeah. and they'd rather just stick to, hey, let's just... I watch TV and all that oh, stuff yeah, me and too. watch movies. I love that stuff, yeah. but it's like... You can waste a lot of time sitting oh, yeah. there watching TV and not I accomplishing I anything. I love video games. <laughs> right. Don't get me wrong. I love all that stuff. But, but I, I, day, do, I still sit there and think, man, I could have been playing drums for like two hours right now. You know what I mean? Like Right. And yeah. So exactly. So when I when I started kind of working on the, if you don't mind, no, um, no, go ahead. on the percussive frequencies thing, I, I, I set a goal for myself. I'm going to figure out how to do this all by myself. Just me. Yeah. And it wasn't because I didn't want to work with other people. It was right when we were mixing that album, the Demi Orr album, and we were already kind of right in the middle of the pandemic. Self-challenge, yeah. And I was like, I'm not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. um, let's do something productive other than just sit here and kind of be depressed. Yeah. You know? And I started coming up with all this really cool stuff, and I'm like, I really don't care if anybody hears this. Yeah. I just want to do it for me. Yeah. And I like it. So as w the way I look at it, as long as I'm enjoying it, that's a victory. Yeah. So... I just kept coming up with all this material. And I'm like, wow, I wonder if other people would like it. So I started sharing it, like, with really close friends because it's not done. It's not mixed or mastered. Yeah. Just give me your honest opinion. Like, if, as an outsider, would you listen to this just as a, as a, a normal listener, not even a musician? Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to hit musicians. I want this to be something where just any person might be able to yeah. listen to it. So that kind of really helped me get through that whole thing. And I was – I got a lot of a lot of material out of it, and to me, I was like, "That's the silver lining in this whole thing." Is that I pushed myself to finally start doing this stuff that I was putting off for all those years. Acceptance and kind of yeah. Because a lot of times, everybody else was the one engineering these albums, and I I didn't learn as much as I wanted to, or yeah. I just was like, "Hey, let's just let's get it done." So that was kind of a a really cool thing for me, and uh, I've got the rest of my life to figure it out. So it's like I'm just gonna keep trying to get better at it. And, even if it's just for me to do my own thing and if it's just for me to hear, yeah. to me, that'll be fine. But I wanted to get it out there, and it's really important to me. But it was more of a I, I did this by myself kind of thing. So. Yeah, I think that's what a lot of people try to replace the 
I think we're as humans we're supposed to breathe and accept and think, but I think we just mask it with like fast food, blah blah blah. Yeah. Like I mean, it's easy to get caught up. In and that. I'm just I mean a hypocrite, you know. Right. <laughs> yep, I'm not perfect, but right. I I do truly believe that I want to learn because I can sit there and practice on for a week. And as soon as a red light comes on, oh yeah, I'm a train wreck. Oh like, yeah. <laughs> you know what? Not many people talk about that. Yeah. And I will talk about somebody that I really, really respect now. That I don't know if you know him, but you ever heard of Craig Blundell? Uh, if I, I'm so good with faces over names, like but. He he was a Roland guy. Uh-huh. Uh He used to demo all their stuff. He literally helped create their sounds for a lot of the TD kits. Really? Like, and I'm like, how did you get that gig? Anyway, so I used to watch his videos of him demoing octopads and all the percussion. And then he started playing with um, Steve Wilson Mm. from uh, the uh, Porcupine Tree. Oh, really? And he toured with them when he did a solo. And he would have these blogs when he was on tour because he was getting a lot of flack. And I think he played in this uh, another band. And he was getting a lot of, like, haters. Whatever reason, like you're not this guy, you're well, not that guy. Who success, are you? Anytime there's success, there's always like, people didn't really know his name that well, yeah. so they were kind of just giving him crap. And he was he would talk about this stuff about stage fright mm-hmm. and recording and that red light syndrome. Yeah, and nobody talks about that, but that's a real thing. It is for a lot of people. Yeah, and it's like to me, I could be in my own house in my own room with nobody home, and I'm still like distraught. Right, <laughs> it's, it's, it's 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 a work in progress. And yeah. To get back to the percussive frequencies thing, yeah. everything I wrote, I had melodies and parts kind of worked out, but I would pretty much just set a tempo mm-hmm. and record, and it, one take of the, I would do about six to eight tracks, but I would do the melodic percussion, like xylophone, marimba, whatever I'm doing, then I'd go back in and I'd do bongos, djembe, tablas, like underneath that. Yeah. Because I want to have different versions where there's hand drums and just the melodic percussion with no drum beats. So that way it's a little more chill. Mm-hmm. And then I started layering beats underneath that. And the only variation there would be is I would use different patches. Like I'd use 808s or like different kits. Sometimes I'd use like uh, acoustic kits. But I wanted to have different versions of the beats with different s- sounds. And I did those all in one take, no punching in, and I w- a lot of it was improvised. Mm-hmm. And to me, I was like, it was really helping me lock into the click, but also, I didn't know what I was going to do next. Yeah. To me, and I did that for a year and a half, two years, and it really helped me get tighter. Yeah. Not that I felt like I wasn't super tight with a click, but obviously you're nervous. Like, you could have a part down pat, and once yeah. you get into the studio, it's a, yeah, it's I mean, there's, you know. Everybody's different, but so to me, I was like, I was just trying to, I'm going to record as much as I can with a click. Yeah. And that was great. That wasn't introduced to me until probably like my mid-20s, to be realistic. I yeah. mean, I mean, like, I, I had some experience playing metronomes, but I think the reality yeah. of the click track is kind of scary sometimes, you know. Yeah. Well, that's that's when it goes back to, regardless of what people think about playing with the sequencer, mm-hmm. a lot of the gigs I've played with the sequencer or a click, mm-hmm. it is very difficult to do. Yeah. But you want it to sound real, but you cannot miss a note. Yeah, and that's so when you no play matter it. what anybody says, if you can get through a gig and not miss a note, that's a success, man. But do you feel like you're losing when you're disconnected with the audience? Because I kind of, 
like when I do that, I feel like I'm just in my like cube. You know what I mean? Well, like, and I'm trying to like look cool while I'm doing it. You know? What I mean? like, right. Well, <laughs> that, the downside is, is if you got in ears on, yeah. you're, you're missing a lot of the experience. So yeah. that I will say, you you miss a lot of that if you didn't have it. And I've done a lot of gigs without it too. Yeah. Where I'm just playing to like a Tomo rhythm watch, where I just want to, uh, I'll maybe have one in and just make sure I'm not speeding up. Because I tend to speed up a little bit live. I think everyone does, yeah. You know, yeah. but uh, so I don't think there's anything wrong with it. It's just how you use it. Adrenaline. But you can kind of lose a little bit of the feel of that rawness. Yeah. So I, it is nice to just not do it sometimes and just go for it. But I can easily go see a band and tell if they're playing with a click or not. Oh, yeah. I like, and it's not saying it's bad. I'm just saying I can totally tell when the band's swaying and when they're not yeah. swaying. Or and there was an art form, and guys like Steve Gadd, some of these guys talk about it where. Some of them are really good at playing in front or behind the click intentionally, mm. not because they're off, to give it that human feel. And I think if you can really master that, yeah, you can kind of get rid of some of that mechanical feel to it. No, my, my bad habit is, is I just try to land so I don't hear it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's what Neil Peart used to say is like, yeah. if you're doing it right, you don't hear the click. Yeah. And I was always like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Well, you're so tight, but then... He got to the point where he was like, I'm too mechanical. And that's when he kind of re-envisioned how he was playing and started I think Test for Echo was when he, like, kind of – I know that's when he came back, but I think that was, like, the evolution of Neil Peart right there. Yeah, the Freddie Gruber thing. Yeah. And he was trying to be more fluid. And I saw him on every tour from Test for Echo to the last one. Really? I, I As big of a fan as I was of theirs, uh. I didn't get to see him until Test for Echo. But I saw him twice on that tour. And then, uh. of course, everything happened. Then I saw him on Vapor Trails and all the other tours after that. But that last tour, R40 – these guys are kind of doing a little more improvising yeah. than I'd ever seen, and you could tell they were kind of having more fun with it, and they never really did that before. I, I don't right? think they were taking uh, – they were obviously being serious, but I don't think they were taking themselves so seriously. Right. I mean, they had already accomplished everything they yeah. need to. So, I, to me, it was just like, these guys are great live. I don't care. I mean, they could totally have a train wreck, and no one would care because no. it just doesn't happen. Yeah. But they're humans, and it's like, to me, if there's one band, if somebody asked me what's your favorite band, it would be Rush. Yeah. Because just of – and the reason is, is there's only two bands, in my opinion, that have been able to pull off what they have, and it's Rush and Tool. And what I mean by that is, you got these bands that are like progressive with these crazy song songs, but they're on the radio. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. Tool's, I would say more than Rush. I mean, not downgrading Rush. I'm just saying, but Tool literally forced radio stations to play Schism, <laughs> which is like seven minutes long, yeah, or whatever. Vicarious was yeah. eight minutes, like, and and like whether you like them or not, like you got to say that's pretty crazy. Yeah, when people want it that bad. And you're kind of like, all right, I guess that takes up. Right. And they kind of took the throne for a rush and like King Crimson and like in the 90s, they were like, I mean, I liked the first two albums. Yeah. Opiate and Undertow. Yeah. And when I first heard Stink Fist on the radio, I go, this is going to be my next favorite band. Yeah. Because I knew they were doing more than they were doing before. And then if you listen to Anima, it's like, it's almost like they went back in time and recorded a progressive rock album in the 70s. Yeah. Because of how... Just like third eye, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think Ladder also is like when I got introduced. Excuse me if I'm saying that wrong, but that's uh, that's when they blew up, and then I went yeah. back, yeah, and bought like Opiate, Undertow, Anima, whatever. Yeah, but I think Ladder also is kind of like their centerpiece. Yeah, because it's a masterpiece. Yeah. It's like one fluid song almost, right? Yeah, because when you're listening to that, you're like. I think I learned how to, or tried to learn how to play drums to that album. Right. <laughs> Takes and Leeches sounded because of the way the panning was and the drums. I thought like just before YouTube. So I didn't see what he was actually doing. So I yeah. was, I just thought like it was off-worldly, you know. Yeah, like, I mean, I l I remember listening. I love Lateralus, and I saw him on that tour, and it was mind blowing. But I'll tell you what, when I listened to that album, I go, I'm not sure how they did this in a studio because it's 
it sounds like almost like one song with all the interludes. And I know they didn't do it in one song, yeah. but the way they did it and all this, it's so fluid. Yeah. And to me, it's a masterpiece. I still listen to an album at work. I mean, I all start from the beginning to the end. I'm like, damn. It's one of those albums <laughs> you can listen to the whole thing. You don't yeah. skip any tracks. And I, that, have, I, have to to s- I have to say the new album's growing on me. I, 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 that's the thing about Toll albums. They do grow on you. Uh, you know, Fear and Knocking Them, the song, I was hooked right away. Right. But now I've been like kind of like, Listen to that song, and I'll reach out to another song, and I'll circle mm-hmm. back to Fear Knock. You know what I mean? Right. That's how I don't know. That's the way Tool albums are to me. I just it takes me time to kind of like. Yeah. Sometimes they're not right out of the gate. You know they're good. Yeah. But you don't realize how good until you've listened to it like five or six times. I was even like that with Lateralis. It was like yeah. I knew it was good, but then when you like sit there and listen to it a bunch of times, you're like, wow. <laughs> and then Ten Thousand <laughs> Days, I was like, it was even produced even better. Yeah. But Ten Thousand Days didn't hit me right away. I mean, I knew it was good, but there were some songs on there where I was like, ah, I'm not too sure. Kind of different. But yeah. I realized that, hey, man, this is good. They're not doing the same thing over and over. Yeah. And then Fear Inoculum, I was like, this is a flat-out masterpiece. This yeah. thing is so well-produced, it's scary. Yeah. And I know some people kind of didn't like it, but I'm like, I, I, there's not really a bad song on that You're album. You're not going to please everybody. I don't care how yeah. you, get, you get into the Beatles, come back from the dead. Some people are still going to hate it. Right, and with the tool, like I said, I don't care if you like them or not, but look what they've accomplished, yeah. and they're doing some pretty progressive stuff, and to me, it's like, there's not many bands, and that's, like I said, I know I said Rush and Tool, but it's like, if you look back, how many bands were progressive rock that are on the radio, and that those are the only two I can think of other than like Genesis and maybe Pink Floyd, Yeah. and their stuff wasn't even quite as crazy as that. Well, I just wish Danny Carey would push out more content. So you can oh. visually see, but I think that would take away from Mystique. I think that's what they're trying to do. And that, <laughs> yeah. They're really big on that Mystique. And, yeah. And, and to be honest with you, there's that there's a big first video I've watched a thousand times. I know you've seen it. Uh, I can't say it Numa? right. Yeah. Oh, when he's playing the the drum cam. Yeah, and it's like all nicely produced, and like you see it, and you're like, that's a master class, man. Yeah, I just like, why can't I have like the whole album like that? Like, I watched the uh, reaction videos to that. People watching yeah, that yeah. and just watching him do it is amazing. But they've been filming a lot of tours since Lateralis. And I know they have the videos, yeah. live videos, but they probably won't put it out for who knows, maybe forever, but maybe they want to keep that mystique. But man, if they put out a DVD, they would sell those things like hotcakes, man. Yeah, and even looking behind him, he has all those mugs and those racks and you're just like, what is that? Did you see him on the last tour? Uh, no, I have never seen Toll Live. Oh, man. Yeah. You get a chance. You will not be disappointed. Their laser light shows, it, it rivals Pink Floyd. I, yeah, I say they're more of a modern slash Pink Floyd rush. I think it's the closest thing you're really going to get. Their light show is incredible. Yeah. Just their whole show is incredible. I mean, you're not really watching those guys. Mm-hmm. You're watching the, the multimedia. Their, their stage is a screen sometimes, mm-hmm. the back, and then, of course, the uh, lasers. But, yeah, if you ever get a chance, man, you won't be disappointed, and I'm sure they'll – I think they're going to put out an album a lot sooner this next time. Yeah, Danny was saying something about how they already have like a a catalog kind of brewing. That'd be cool. I'll buy it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Keith, uh, I think we we went over a lot of stuff today, and it, it was fun. I think we're going to do this again. I sure. hope so. Yeah, I'd love to. Thanks, um, for, thanks for having me, and hopefully I wasn't rambling too. No, I think we were equally rambling. <laughs> <laughs> I love to talk drums, man, so anytime. Uh, yeah. Uh, I'd love to do it. Yeah, like I said, I'll have you on. Um, we're going to push, uh, like you said, check out your website, Keith. Uh, Heaney, right? Yeah, the website's not active right now, but Demiora.com, that's a good one. And you can just go to Facebook, and it's Keith Heaney Drummer. That's my Facebook page. Mm. And I've got a personal profile. So if you just look up Keith Heaney, you can, you can find either one of those profiles. Um, but the, the website will be up and running later this year once I get more content from the, uh, the other project I was talking about. Good. Well, once again, thank you. This was fun. Yeah, no worries, man. Thank you.